Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with M.K. Palmore. We are all lifelong learners, and nowhere is this more relevant than in the practice of leadership. Our goal is continual learning and improvement. Let's get after it. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey folks, this is the Leadership Student Podcast with MK Palmore. I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, I'm welcoming to the virtual stage Trent Booth, who is the leader of the Veritas Leadership Group. Uh, I am excited about this conversation because Trent is a uh, expert, uh, leader, coach, and I think that in the course of this conversation, we're going to be able to tease out some nuggets that'll be valuable to uh, our listening audience. So Trent, welcome to the Leadership Student. MK, thanks for having me. Really excited about having you in today. Um, just a level set for our listeners. Uh, how about uh, you know thirty seconds on background? How it is that uh, you ended up taking uh, uh, the leadership role with uh, the Veritas Leadership Group, or starting it, I should say. Uh, but uh, just a little bit about your background for our audience. Sure. Originally born and raised in uh, Western Canada. I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, actually, but mostly grew up in Vancouver. Uh, moved out to Calgary to finish high school, do some college. And then I started selling Cutco Cutlery as a 19-year-old. Now, I know there's many of your listeners that uh, have done the same thing or at least interviewed for the knife thing. And uh, as a 19-year-old, that was the stroke of, uh, I mean, the, 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 the kismet that I needed. Uh, I did. I was not looking for a sales position. In fact, I was. Uh, I'm a third generation sales guy. My grandfather worked at Procter and Gamble for a better part of 40 years. My dad got his start there as well. Uh, but that was not necessarily what I was looking for. I was thinking more. I would go into perhaps theology, maybe theater arts, and those are diametrically uh, they're not exclusive. But <laughs> at the end of the day, I had a lot of things I was good at. But uh, what I did love about what I was doing at Cutco, and I, I liked the sales piece. However, for me, the leadership and, and being able to move into management and serve and, and leading through others, that's what was really attractive to me. And I figured out that uh, that was a role that was actually going to allow me to bring a lot of the different things that I was good at and excelling as a kid uh, into my adult life. So things like communication, things like creativity, thinking through, solving for problems, troubleshooting, uh, the human problems, if you will. So if I could get good at those things, I could, I could excel. Uh, so by the time I was 21, uh, Cutco moved me out to Montreal, city of 3 million people. And I was the guy, uh, there was nobody in front of me and they let me pioneer our, our, uh, Quebec, our French, uh, expansion and uh, we had a really nice run out there. It was a territory that people really didn't want to go to because it was French and English. I had studied French in in high school, and uh, we excelled. We uh, had a really great run there. I was promoted to division manager in uh, 2002, and eventually moved down to the states uh, when we had broken some recruiting records. We'd had some nice results. Uh, large sales teams. I uh, had direct reports, as many as uh, about a dozen directly reporting to me. And we were managing a staff of hundreds of sales reps uh, across uh, from Ottawa right to, to Halifax. Um, in 2004, I moved my family down uh, to report out of the uh, Vector Sales Support Headquarters. I'll use both the term Vector and Cutco interchangeably. Everybody knows the name Cutco, but not everybody's heard of Vector. Uh, they're the marketing arm that Cutco owns to, to market the product. So I was studying best practices 
um, and in the company and just trying to help make sure that all the leaders had access to the best tools that were working. And uh, was getting some traction with that in sales support specifically, still leading a team. Uh, however, where everything shifted for me was I had a, I had experience with coaching and I didn't even know what that word was, but the, the, uh, vice president at the time, he ran what we called vector university. It was like an in-house training program and the event was tremendous, but like many of you, the event was neat and then it dissipates its goes, but he got like, I'm going to say eight to a dozen 45 minute coaching sessions with me afterwards where he was just pouring into me. And this was transformational, having that regular, consistent uh, conversation with somebody that was getting into the soil of my life and really just pouring into me. Unfortunately, that was Marty Dimitrovich. He got sick uh, afterwards. He had uh, pancreatic cancer and fought it, managed to fight it off for years. Um, but as he got sick, he was able to do less and less coaching. So while I w didn't see myself as a, a coach, and I would even venture – uh, boy, I don't know that I feel like a, an expert most days. If you see me around my family, I still feel very much like a student, which is why I love the title of this podcast. I don't think we're ever done. Uh, but I started uh, mentoring and, and coaching other leaders. And some of the people that I was working with became outliers in the field, breaking uh, company records that had existed for many, many years. And uh, I was kind of getting my day work done and then on the side just talking to anybody who would talk to me. And was able to get my first 10,000 hours of coaching under my belt without even having to send a, an invoice. It was a very unique opportunity to, to grow and learn, to see it working. Eventually, uh, Cutco saw that it was going so well, they made it my job. They let me write a position description and create the first leadership development department uh, in the company, where my job was to not just with the one-on-one -on -one coaching, but also to have some leadership development retreats, again, designed to pour into our people, the thinking be that, uh, healthy, ha healthy, happy people produce great results. They stick around if they're green and growing. And uh, after doing that since 2012, uh, decided to strike out on my own. Just this past January, we've been incubating uh, Veritas Leadership Group for many years now, but it was time to really kind of take it outside of just within Vector and uh, bring it a little more uh, globally is kind of the thinking here. So I've been doing one-on-one -on -one coaching outside of Vector uh, for about seven years now and uh, looking forward to continuing that work as I continue to study and meet other great people like yourself, MK. So I, I, I can certainly appreciate um, I, uh, my use of the term expert really should be um, uh, maybe expert student, right? Maybe that's a, maybe that's <laughs> a like couple, that maybe that's a couple term, right? Because I agree with you and, and certainly in naming this podcast, the idea is that we're constantly learning, especially about the discipline of leadership. It's so um, it's so rich with texture it requires uh, investment uh, by prospective leaders, those who are students of the discipline. It requires you to really invest uh, mental energy. Uh, and uh, with that, the idea that you're going to grow from these experiences that you have, and, and maybe it'll make you become a better leader uh, as time goes on. I, I want to trace some steps back to uh, the foundational pieces. I, I'm of the firm belief that we, we typically are exposed to leadership much earlier in life than we uh, like to say, or, or that we mm. typically recognized. When was it? Did, did you recognize that uh, that leadership as a discipline uh, was a thing? Was it high school? High school sports? Maybe earlier? Maybe it was a parent who had a pretty strong mm. 
uh, involvement uh, in your development. But when when was leadership a thing for you originally? MK, I think you and I are wildly aligned on this topic. I would say, when did I become consciously aware that leadership was a thing? I would say that would probably be in my teen years, although if I trace it back, and recently I, I have, I just joined that Ancestry.com and, and sent some DNA back to be analyzed. And going through the family tree has been interesting. Uh, but similarly, I thought, well, what if I did a leadership family tree of all the people that I can trace back that have been pouring into me and making a difference? And uh, that goes way back, right? Because we, we observe, we watch, we study, we see what works, what doesn't work. So even as a kid, I mean, my parents, uh, I think, did a pretty great job. Uh, now, perfect by any means? Nah. But also, uh, really, just uh, selflessly giving, uh, pouring into us. Uh, words of affirmation, lots of quality time, one-on-one dates. I'm the eldest of four boys, but my mom would still take us out individually for dates. Uh, I have three kids. I don't know how she had the time for that. That's, but, that's amazing. But she made the time. And my dad, you know, would get time with him at the ballpark. He would coach, or I got to uh, umpire baseball with him eventually. And uh, So I could certainly go back to my parents, which is certainly a, a cliche response. You know, what I did notice, though, is that there were several – people that I would now identify as leaders, people who are in leadership or authority over me that uh, did sponsor me. In other words, they saw something in a young Trent Booth that looked like leadership, and they initiated with me. So even if I didn't see myself as a leader at the time, they were treating me in a special way. Uh, I had uh, a wonderful coach. He used to call me the Bent Truth. (laughs) My fun little spin on Trent. <laughs> nice Ruth, nickname. I was giving him some tale when I was late for practice, and he's like, "I oh, that the bent truth. That's your new name." So, uh, but Coach Kellum did an amazing job just uh, modeling that. And seventh grade, I had what I would say is my favorite teacher. And I think when I share that, most of us have a sense of that favorite teacher, the one that sponsored you, and uh, he made me uh, in charge of at, as a twelve twelve uh, year old. We had a computer lab that was networked intranet and on the internet in 1987, which 86, <laughs> cutting wow. edge, amazing. And he put me and two of my buddies in charge of it, which is fascinating. I still don't know why. I don't know. I don't know why, but he saw something in us. And it wasn't just that. I was in, he taught band class. He was also my homeroom teacher, but he just really, even things like going on a, a retreat or as a, as a, as a class, he had me um, interview um, on the video camera, which again, pretty cutting edge technology in 1987. But the fact that he he chose me, I, I still don't know what he saw, but uh, I really appreciate that. Selling uh, Cutco in 1993, that's like 30 years, man. Um, my first boss was just, uh, the kids would say today, pumping my tires. At least <laughs> I would say that as a kid. Uh, and, and he was telling his boss about, I got this Trent Booth guy. And the fact that he had, again, identified something in me that he saw was a, a leader. And uh, this sponsorship, you know, it'd be, I'd be curious to hear some of your thoughts on this, MK, because the more I think about it, this should be a book. Something about the idea of sponsoring others and reaching out and investing into them. By no means are these the only people that have have, uh, reached in and and tagged me and said, hey, I'm going to support you. I'm going to sponsor you to become a leader. In many cases, mentoring me. uh, My my best friend at this point, John Cain, would be one that I would identify as a leader now. And he's been pouring into me uh, for uh, 18 years, 19 years, actually, directly. And I got to report to him 
uh, in that job. It's part of the reason I stayed so long was I just I had access to this amazing mentor that led well, had empathy, had words of affirmation when I needed them, uh, helped me articulate uh, emotions when I could I wasn't even fully aware of them. Somebody that was thinking about me when I wasn't around and conspiring for my success. So. I recognize that as I'm giving some of these answers, you get me going. It's going to be like drinking from the fire hose at times. I'm just no, that's good. Let, let's keep it coming. Again, but I'll come up for air here. <laughs> no, let, let, let me let me uh, pull the thread back on something that you mentioned, and I certainly agree with. I, I had a very similar experience. It wasn't until, uh, I think, high school that it was uh, firmly entrenched into me. And I love your expression, to pour it uh, into someone, the effort, mm. the ability for them to develop. Uh, I certainly had a um, uh, two individuals, both a guidance counselor and a formal leader uh, in high school who clearly recognized something in me. I'm not sure that I could even in retrospect identify it myself, but there was a quality of something present in my character and how I carried myself that they thought, let's support this young man in his development mm-hmm. and effort. And they and they gave me opportunities to succeed in that regard. And that helped to subsequently build confidence. And then before you know it, I I began to think of myself as a leader. And I think that Mm. that contributed uh, quite a bit to my own sort of wrapping my own psyche around it. I actually almost even wonder, MK, if it's possible to become a leader without somebody taking their flame and touching it to your coal, right? Somebody bringing fire to you to get that flame ignited and to keep it going. So it's not just a one-time touch. If somebody's told you one time you're a leader, I don't know if that gets it done. Right. It's the consistency and the constancy, right? So we're going to have to breach the subject a little bit earlier than I was planning. And that's a a growing continual debate that I want to have with my guest around whether or not leaders are born or made. Um, And I think you have touched upon something that I think is super interesting, the fact that it requires repeated uh, investment and contact in order for, certainly I felt for myself, I I don't feel like I was a born leader. I have a definite um, stance on this issue. I feel there were qualities, certainly, that I developed as a child. The subject was introduced to me early that helped uh, me to get my head wrapped around this idea of what leadership was. And it made me that eternal student that I am. Uh, but I don't think I was born uh, naturally to lead, but I do feel like there were those who invested in me. So let, let's, pre- let's break open the, are leaders born or made? I love it. My strong stance on this, I think we're aligned, is that they're, they're made. Um, I think we're born with certain ingredients. And what I love is that I do believe that anyone could be a leader in that sense. Specifically, you know, somebody reached into you and poured into you. I did have a... Um, They've been one of my longest clients. And he asked me, he said, Trent, what's the seminar? What's the event? What's the Tony Robbins thing I can send my group to? They're talented, but they're, they don't have a lot of experience. I need to ramp them up quickly in leadership skills. And my, my response to him was, there's no book, there's no podcast, there's no event that will get done what you're looking for. The fastest, best way to grow people, in my opinion, is coaching, which is part of the reason this is such a growing industry. Um, is you need the consistency, the constancy, the regular context. It's not enough to be fired up one time because leadership right. isn't a one-time decision. In fact, it's not even a bunch of philosophies that I hold to. It is repeated activity. It's how I behave. It's how I act. And that doesn't mean I'm living in mistake-free life either, right? So part of it is learning quickly from our mistakes. It's like the idea that we can, we can bend that learning curve for people when we get that that repeated contact 
contact to get that learning curve to be much more vertical uh, by increasing their awareness. And that's one of the, in my opinion, the greatest aspects of a, of a leader then is that they're more aware, thereby they can learn better from their wins and their losses. So as they're working through, how did the day go? As they're working through, what did I learn today? How do I feel about it? As they work through, how, let's, let's work through the failure. Hey, we missed here. I missed here. I acted right. badly. And even if I knew the right thing, I didn't do it. By being able to work through that, I'm talking about coaching specifically. So in my opinion, coaching is the best way to build up uh, leaders very quickly. Before that, I think a precursor certainly is mentoring, getting some time with somebody that's just a little further back on the road than you are. Uh, I believe it's very important as a mentor, somebody's pouring into me that I need to find somebody else also to pour into as well. And there's a whole philosophy that would, uh, I think, coincide with that. Uh, and even if it's not formal uh, mentoring, I think that the, the very seed level would be sponsorship. Hey, I see you. Uh, I see who you are. You are talented. You've got some skills. You could help people. By even speaking words like this, words of life into somebody, it makes a difference. So I absolutely uh, believe that anybody, if they're given those opportunities, could decide to become a leader. I do believe at some point you will top out at your leadership abilities, so you better be a student of leadership because it's not enough to know it. Just because uh, they taught it doesn't mean you got it. Just because I learned it doesn't mean I can practice it or consistently do it. So let me even say just because I, I did it for a season doesn't mean I'm always going to do it. I'm going to need right. to continually re-up. Let's, uh, let's go back to this. Um, you didn't expressly call it this, but I, I feel like, there's a need for a deep ability to reflect, uh, for someone to really be able to grow as a leader. You, you touched on the practical aspects of it. That is the evaluating whether or not you, you hit or missed in an opportunity when it comes to leadership. The ability to, you know, following uh, uh, an engagement or exercise, be able to say, wow, I, I, I screwed the pooch on that one. I didn't do well. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, which you know, a, a self-talk conversation I've had many times with myself mm -hmm. following leadership experiences. Mm -hmm. Like I could have handled that differently. I should have, oh, yeah. I should have showed up in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, I could have been more empathetic. I could have, you know, I, you go through this laundry list of things as to, you know, why you weren't excelling. And then from a perception standpoint, people on the outside, wow, you did a fantastic job, but like you, you can become so self-critical, I think, in terms sure. of how you approach. But let's talk a little bit about this ability to have that sort of self-reflective attitude and be mm -hmm. open to the idea that, um, man, you're not going to do everything perfectly. Uh, no question. And I would say, boy, there are some days where that inner voice is just critical, brutal. So as a father of, of three, there have been the next day where I've got buyer's remorse of how I showed up with my kids the night before right. I snapped at my girls this one time and I'm asking the wrong questions. I'm driving to work and I'm just housing myself. MK. I'm like, why am I so angry all the time? What's wrong with me? I, do I need therapy? I'm like <laughs> asking the wrong, I think the wrong questions. Right. Uh, I sat in at a workshop. This was an appreciative inquiry workshop. This is work that they're doing out of case Western reserve university. I think as early as the sixties. And this idea of uh, appreciative inquiry is a study of the best of what was, what is, and what could be. And it was Jackie Kelm that was running this workshop, and she asked some questions. She says, well, 
what are some silver lining opportunities or wins from your rough experience here or the thing that you're, you're struggling with? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> she goes, what can you appreciate right. uh, about the situation? And, and there were many things. First of all, I'm like, well, why does this bother me so much? I'm like, well, it bothers me because I do love them and I'd like to be a better dad. <laughs> like, I want to be a great dad. And it really bothers me because I let them down. And I, I'm, I'm thinking I even had an appreciated view of myself that was probably a little stronger than I thought. I'm saying things like, you're better than this. I'm like, well, actually, no, I'm not. I do believe that I'm not done making mistakes. So why can't I just get back on the horse? I would never say to my kids, what's wrong with you? Why are you so angry? You need therapy. I would never say that to anybody I coach. And here I was saying it to myself. So one of the in the exercise, she's asked, well, what, imagine the ideal. What do you wish you had done? And what a better set of questions to start asking. I'm saying it takes longer to explain than the five-minute exercise. She had me say, what can you appreciate? Can you imagine the ideal? And what are you going to do? There's action that's required going forward. I'm like, well, I got to apologize to my girls. <laughs> so, so I did. And they said, it's okay, daddy. I said, it's not okay, ladies. Actually, I've, I've, I'm upside down with you. I'm actually indebted to you. Can you forgive me? We forgive you, dad. And what was beautiful in this moment is I think they were like young teens well, I'm treating them with dignity and respect in this moment. So right. actually what was a terrible moment now is dad apologizing and actually envisioning them on how to handle conflict. When I've messed up, here's how you do this. Um, but this came out of that introspection, the self-awareness that came from that introspection. So I had to take some action. Then I needed to actually follow up because as I'm doing this exercise, I was completely missing the fact that my wife watched all this go down, didn't house me in real time, and she really could have, should have been like, hey, hey, daddy-o, maybe uh, pump the brakes. <laughs> she, she didn't. She let me kind of light the fires, and then she put all the fires out, got the kids in bed, and came to bed and didn't wreck me there either. She just extended grace. So part of the action was I got to let my wife know, thank you so much. I've got buddies you've got buddies that are single dads <laughs> and like i'm like i'm so grateful i've got a partner to do this with right that backs me up and then when my kids fall off or i fall off i've got a net because she caught me on that one and i had to express that gratitude to her but all this activity or action or self-regulation really came out of that introspection uh to my right here are journals that i intentionally put out here uh behind me in, in, in every coaching session because that's where if the place is on fire, I'm going to make sure everybody's out, and then I'm grabbing the journals because this is where I've done the introspection. This is where I've done the work. This is where I'm raising my awareness, replaying the tapes, and trying to ask myself even better questions. If I can ask myself better questions and raise my awareness, I've got a shot of learning the lessons from the wins and, yeah, from the losses. So um, journaling is is interesting uh, because I, I used to be – used to be – uh, an avid journaler, um, and stopped probably a decade ago. Um, not because I didn't enjoy the process. Um, but I, it was oftentimes, uh, I was in conflict with myself cause I was pouring into those journals, yeah. some pretty sensitive pieces of information. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in today's, uh, age, um, <laughs> I don't know. I just got, I, I got super sensitive about putting oh, that yeah. kind of content down, uh, down in writing. Although mm. I didn't recognize at the time and probably look back, it's, it's certainly a way of, um, uh, sponsoring the idea of sort of, um, you know, expressing your thoughts, getting them out, helps you digest them, helps you think differently about them. Are there any exercises that you go through? Um, maybe in the way that you coach others about 
what could be described as that visceral reaction you might have mm-hmm. to a, to an instance or a, a leadership opportunity, and maybe how it is that you go about pausing to ensure that how you show up is in fact a way that mm-hmm. best represents how you would like to engage. Do you think about that at all? It's mm, a great question. You know, when it, when it comes to journaling, one of the opportunities here is to is to do that is to pause. And sometimes people will push back because all of my journals are, well, most of my journals, I should say, are analog. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing into a physical paper. I actually learned how to do cursive writing a few years back. Well, relearned. I did it as a kid, but lost art. So part of my thinking was anybody's going to read this. If they can't read cursive, I'm good. <laughs> it's Nat- encoded. Natural <laughs> encryption. <laughs> Analog encryption. There it is. Uh, by the way, there are some pages that are missing in these because I did feel uh, like I was released after I got it out and got linear. Nobody else needs to see this. <laughs> my kids will inherit these at some point. Uh, my journals are private, but if you're to read them, I'm hoping what you would see is Okay, Trent had a bad day here. I will say when I review the bad day, um, I usually feel better about that because I can see, boy, I was really up against it and I did the right thing after this. Or part of the right thing might have been I did nothing. I I really wanted to rage and I didn't. I stayed down and that was the right move. Or, huh, I got through this. And actually when I got more information, it wasn't as bad as I thought. So reviewing the journals gives me perspective. It kind of reframes what was going on. I will tell you, I've gone through these even recently and – Ah, there's one where I opened up in Montreal, and I'm like, oh, where is 21-year-old Trent Booth at? What's he doing today? And there's a gap. Okay, there's a gap from when I opened in, in like, March to, like, July. <laughs> there's a gap of no entries. I was busy launching a business, and what I wouldn't do to get in a time machine and go back and slap 21-year-old Trent Booth and get him to write some stuff down, capture the emotional snapshots. Not only did I think that would have made me better in real time, I, there's a legacy aspect of this too, which is like, man, we think we're going to remember everything, and we don't. Our such brains a, are such a great point. Yeah. Beautifully designed to dump the cash regularly. <laughs> <laughs> so by writing it down, I capture some of those beautiful nuances that help me celebrate that win or that loss and celebrate what it means or the things that I learned. Sometimes I go through that and go, this, this is the moment where I learned something that I hold near and dear as a presupposition today, but this is where I learned it. Wow. Or this is an encounter that I had. Somebody said something that was very profound, and had I not captured it, I would have lost it forever. Details like that. So you you bring up an interesting point. Uh, One, because I believe that between leadership experiences, it's important to take a few moments as a leader. And this is different for people. You know, everyone has their, their method, right? Mm. Maybe you take time off in between leadership experiences so that you have time to decompress and digest and get your head wrapped around the experience that you just had. And also how do you fully equip yourself moving into the new experience? Mm -hmm. I don't know that everyone does that. I I have to do it because I think it's Um, important because I make, boy, I make a lot of mistakes. So I I want to take some time to recognize them Mm. in an effort to not repeat them. Do you have a method? How do you think about transitioning from one leadership experience to the next? And and how important is it to pause Hmm. and reflect? Boy, when I'm at my best, the the pause is everything because it's really not just what you know, MK. It's it's what you remember, (laughs) right? So if I have knowledge, but I can't recall it, is it helping me is a very fair question. More than that, not just 
what do I know? What do I remember? What do I, how do I feel about what I know? If I, for example, there are underlying feelings. If I know I should be doing something and I'm not doing it, uh, forthcoming book from Trent Booth will include a chapter on what I call the integrity gap, the gap between what I think I should be doing and what I'm actually doing. Love it. <laughs> and I've got to take stock of that occasionally. What, there is a cost to me being aware that I should be doing this and I'm doing this. I'm not even trying for this. Me being aware of that, I've got now an opportunity to make some new choices. And when I'm aware, I've got a shot. So the journaling gives me an opportunity to not only increase my recall <laughs> or increase what I have a shot of remembering down the road, uh, it cements it better in my, uh, in, my, in my brain. It also gives me a chance to interact with it in terms of how I feel about what I know. So sometimes I've got a thought from the, from the sermon I just heard or from the conference I was just at or the podcast, and I've got some thoughts about this. Well, now I need to interact with how I feel about that. Hey, this is – you said it earlier. Hey, I used to do this. <laughs> we, we had a cliche. It works so well, I stopped doing it. Good friend of mine, Jerry Otteson. Uh, give credit where credit is due. Uh, and I recognize that. Hey, listen, I used to do this, and I've stopped. It's time to get back on the horse. I don't need to beat myself up or ask why I stopped. I've stopped journaling. I'm going to jump back into, into journaling. But for me to get a sense of not only become consciously aware of what I know or consciously aware of those, those lessons, I need to learn faster. I'm making mistakes every day. If I'm pausing and replaying and going through those, not only can I learn the lesson faster, I can process how I feel about it faster. Sometimes that frustration, if I leave that unchecked, MK, that could last for a while. Right. And may inform future decisions. How I feel informs how I perform, whether I'm consciously aware of it or not. So in this case, if I've learned the lesson and I'm frustrated, I sometimes need to release myself from that. Because when I write it down or talk it through with a, with a trusted friend, I get in linear terms. I get cognitive. Now, I would say I typically pitch more towards intuitive. And this cognitive exercise gives me an opportunity to reframe or become aware and make a new choice about how I want to feel about this. Yeah. So you asked me earlier about how do I get some of our clients started in journaling. We asked two simple questions. And it's almost going to sound too simple. Please don't dismiss it without trying it because it is that simple. We asked two questions with two qualifiers. The first question is, what just happened? And when people interact with that question, what just happened? I get the greatest question usually afterwards. They say, well, what do you mean what just happened? What just happened today? What just happened this week? What happened this quarter? What happened this year? And the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the answer is yes. Whatever comes up for you, here's what's great. If you do this enough times you will come up with different answers. If I find myself doing this in December, I'm thinking about the year. Right. If I do this at the end of quarter one, I'm probably thinking about Q1 stuff. If, I, if I'm doing this in, in July, I've still got time to impact the year, still got impact, time to impact the family, whatever. I've got time and I'll think in different increments, but it's not enough. Here's what I typically do, MK, full disclosure. Confession's good for the soul. I will write down a list of things, facts that just happened. I need to go through the second part of that question. What just happened and how do I feel about it? Especially as a guy. I think that more of my, my – uh, a lot of the people I work with, if they're more intuitive and they'll check in, they automatically have that. Like my wife will automatically document how she feels about it in real time. I need to ask myself the question with a life hack. So I'll ask the question. Okay, here's what happened. How do I feel about this? Actually, I'm frustrated that I missed this goal. And I'm frustrated because I know this has been my this has been my mo. This is what I do. I need to change that. 
all right, what am I going to do different? That's the second question. What just happened? The second question is, what's going to happen? What's coming up? And, yeah, how do I want to feel about that? So if it's something that I've been starting and failing on, starting and failing, I'm like, well, how can I identify in real time and adjust my behavior so that I can gut through the thing I, I either am uh, avoiding or just missing on? How can I get better? Do I need accountability? Do I need a better strategy? Do I, do I need, am I really committed to this or am I just interested? So working through that can change. So I can actually get to a place of confidence where now I'm going to try this and here's my new strategy, my new plan. Here's the new person I'm going to connect with and be accountable with to be able to get some different results this time. All this is coming out of the journal. So this is one way of describing, for me at least, strategic thinking. Right. So this is a way for me to work on myself and to interact with what I know. It's not enough that I have a lot of knowledge. And the average person today, MK, they know the things they ought to do. We don't have a knowledge problem most of the time. We have a behavior problem. The only way out of that is to become aware so that I can disrupt those challenges. Coaching helps with that, but a good journal is a lot cheaper and will get you going a lot further. So I, I didn't mean to um, intentionally go down this route, but I think it's helpful. I hope the audience is getting something out of it. Do you think that there is a um, connection between – uh, the physical nature of journaling as opposed to trying to do the same thing digitally. And I asked that because I tried to switch years ago to digital journaling and it didn't have the same, um, I think, things that I could wrap around it. There was something about sort of going out finding. I, I, I'm into leather products, right? And maybe I, I'll get a leather journal right. that has oh, the yeah. great paper inside. Yeah. And like I get into that whole process of actually identifying the journal itself. You think there's something to the difference between um, digital journaling and the actual act of having the physical book? So here's the yes and. There's certain things that digital journaling can do that can't be done analog. And by the way, I believe that the same is true the other way as well. So, for example, I, I log into TimeHop every day for I think it's been six years is my streak right now. TimeHop takes this day in uh, social media for me and it pulls it up or my photos. And this is now a digital journal. Today, 11 years ago, my son and I, he had a tough night at hockey, and uh, we went out for wings afterwards and just processed it. He wasn't feeling good. I'm like, oh, that's a good dad moment. <laughs> way to go, way to go, dad. Um, that is part of a digital journal and way to review. It's also a great way to reconnect with people. Hey, this concert 10 years ago, look at us. And I'll send it out via text. So digital journal, I don't have a way to be able to document that stuff in my, <laughs> in my, in my right. journal, right? Or at least an easy recall way. That said, I did find when I was doing a digital, like typing it out type journal, I didn't interact with it the same way. Some of uh, the people I talked to say, I can type faster than I can write. I said, well, what if that's not the goal? <laughs> what if we're not trying to be efficient or fast? Right. What if we're trying to be more intimate? And so for me, here's what's kind of fun now. From a visceral perspective, MK, I don't know about you, the only time I'm writing these days handwriting as if I'm in my journal. Yeah. I wonder if there's a Pavlovian response. There's people smarter than me could probably already attest to this, that when I pause and open this up or smell the leather, right. And get into the pages and I've got my good pen and I'm writing and I'm even appreciating some of my writing, which has improved over the last few years. And even maybe there's a coffee ring on here or I spilled some spaghetti on it while I'm working. And I see that in 20 years and it takes me back. There's something that's very visceral, and in my opinion, we're giving it up, we're sanitizing it if it's digital. 
it's encrypted if it's digital, baby. You know, so easier to recall. I just found that I wasn't thumbing through the digital pages right. <laughs> like I will with this um, because I could just read this at any time. It's it's a little easier. Um, but I, I listened to this audio by Jim Rohn in 1993 or 94 about how to use a journal. And there's so much more than even what I'm describing right now. I'm talking about using this as a tool from a business perspective to get linear, get clarity on what it is that your opportunities are, strengths, weaknesses, threats, et cetera. Uh, in addition to that, the emotional snapshots that I otherwise can't capture. If I don't write down my thoughts on this, that's not captured in, in Facebook. <laughs> so the image might bring some of those up, but I can document here what's going on and interact much more. So for me, it's a much more intimate process to write it out. So for my audience, um, I just had a moment mentally. Uh, Trent Booth just convinced me to get back into journaling uh, just Stay through the course of this conversation. So, I love it. Uh, you honor me. I appreciate no, that. No, I, 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 <laughs> I always saw the value in it, but just having this one-on-one -on -one conversation with you really brings back home uh, the value to me in terms of growth and the ability, one, to, to sort of dump <clears throat> my experiences mm. uh, on those pages, but at the same time in looking back on them, it really um, allows you to understand what your trajectory is look, uh, looks like, it. right? It does reframe, you know, if uh, Steve Jobs says you can't connect the dots looking forward, only looking backward, this is part of looking backward. Right. Is it gives me a shot of doing that. I don't share this to impress you, but to impress upon you the value of this. My grandfather, uh, this is his Bible. He was a Lutheran pastor, and he has handwritten notes in here. This is the only thing that's close to a, a journal that I've got from him, but I right. have, if you can see in that. His handwriting isn't great. Also, it's his handwriting. It's unique. Yeah. His handwriting is unique to him. There'll never be another like it. And how precious it's been to read through these notes, these things he's underlined, things he's commented on. He's got sermon outlines in here. He's got scripture that's meant something to him over the years. And the fact that the family gave this to me, I was like, thank you. This is, I, it's priceless. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it's, yeah, my, it's priceless. Right? My, my, my dad did uh, quite a bit of journaling. Uh, and I, um, you know, of his uh, four sons, I'm the, the person who is now in possession of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've gone through it a couple of iterations now, and I'm sure I will continue to do for uh, the remainder of my life. And it gives me different insights in terms of how he thought. Uh, maybe things that he didn't share directly with me, yes. uh, but now uh, insights that are helpful uh, in retrospect, mm. especially if you are reconciling relationships that you had with, with folks. And so it's interesting That's to do that. Great point. Um, think about, uh, if yeah. I can pause for a moment. No, here, absolutely. Go. What you're saying there is, as, especially as dads, we're trying to act, uh, you know, never let him see a sweat. <laughs> Cliche from the 80s. Yeah. Unfortunately, many of us as dads function that way now. And uh, the old analogy of the duck paddling furiously underwater right. and just being super calm up top. I think there's a time where it's appropriate for kids to see dad's got this. <laughs> it's also appropriate for them as they become parents and they're like, I'm a mess. How did my dad have it together? He didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and and they, can the read yeah. they can read it and see how he got through that. Oh, here's the prayer he prayed. Oh, here's how he worked through this. Here's who he talked through with this. Here's how he fought with mom when we didn't see it. Right. This is all valuable, in my opinion, of how do we help the next generation also learn? It wasn't appropriate when they're 14. Hey, my daughter, when she's 34 and maybe gets her first eyes on this, hopefully it'll help her a little bit. No, I, and I'm, I'm sure it will. Hey, I want to uh, shift um, some of the story tactically here to 
um, the first experiences that you had sort of standing up teams and you indicated that um, during your early days with, uh, with Cutco uh, that you were asked to establish a region. I'm sure that there was an exercise in that of identifying uh, who you needed to bring on, who was going to help to represent in theory, what it was you were responsible for doing, how they were going to help you succeed. Team building is a, um, people struggle with it. Uh, I mm. think as leader, it's a, it's tough to do even yeah. if you have all the right pieces in place, but, Imagine, as I, as I think your situation was, you're starting at, as one of one. Hey, build a team and then figure out how to add value to the enterprise. Talk a little bit about the challenges mm. there. Very much parachuted, not quite naked, into that city. An uh, army of one yeah. was the start. And I certainly had a dream of having 100 sales reps launched uh, from training that summer. So I had dreams to be able to start attracting people to that. So I think it did certainly start with a vision of what I was looking for and what the ideal team would look like and what the ideal individual on that team would somewhat, uh, not a physical description, but what type of things would they Persona, value? Yeah, you got it. Characteristics yeah. that we value, right? Uh, let's say core values in and of itself, even. And as hard as that was in the nineties, it's getting harder today. MK as as the job of growing a team and building a team. Um, you know, we spoke earlier about how there's 76 million uh, baby boomers, and there's only 45 million Gen Xers to take over. And this economy was built, frankly, for the 76 million. <laughs> it All needs right. a lot more people that we have available. Well, not only is this a labor shortage, which we're wrestling with, and that impacts this team building question, but this affects leadership. So for example, if the answer is, well, minimum wage goes up, now we're just going to put kiosks out front there, or now you can self-check at the Safeway. Well, you've created a new problem. Unintended consequence. You used mm -hmm. to hire your night managers from the person bagging the groceries. Now where do you get that leader <laughs> who right. sticks their head out and is grown from within? So even what was applicable in 1995 to be able to grow up from within back then is harder to come by nowadays. We're going to need to find a way to do more with who we've got. Now, that might sound like I'm suggesting we compromise as we're building teams. Uh, one of the ways that we've effectively coached uh, teams up is to insist that we work only with A players. And the first place I read that was certainly in Steve Jobs' book uh, when the autobiography came out. But the idea of having only A players, I'm sure it didn't start with him. But as we level up our quality of person that we're working with, the, uh, that rising tide raises all the boats. And it's fascinating when we're, if we truly do functionally believe, not just say that our human resources are our most important resource here, but we actually hold out on that by not just hiring the first candidate that could get the job done. <laughs> we hold out for the best case scenario, the A player. It's easier to pour more into the human resources, give raises to celebrate people making more if we believe that they're green and growing and that they're moving forward. If we have the right people, if we have a team of A players. It's hard to make those decisions, including investing more time when somebody's just getting by. They're right. just okay. They're just fine. So by insisting that we work with, uh, I would say quality over quantity. Now that said is I'm not against hiring somebody I think has a lot of potential and we need to uh, train them up in terms of leadership development. I'm a big fan of taking somebody that's got some raw skills some raw talent and uh, we can make them great. That's where I think some of the coaching comes in there. So that's the fine line we need to ride is come up with, all right, here's who the ideal candidate looks like. Um, and in, in the executive search world, they usually talk about having either a reach down, so somebody's coming from a bigger company to a smaller company, a walk-on, 
or a reach across, somebody that's already doing the job and they come up, or a reach up. And the reach up in this case, somebody that isn't yet doing this but has potential, I think with the right leadership development program in a company or in a team, you can get them, you can get them there. I'm okay with hiring somebody that's, uh, somebody that's not as experienced if we do believe we've got a good onboarding program and a way to level them up with regards to their leadership ability. So that's one of the ways that you look at it in retrospect. Over time, has what you value as the appropriate characteristics, have, has that changed over time for you in terms of their relative importance? I would say it's probably been a deepening more than really shifted. You know, something like loyalty is something that was super important to be in 1995. It's still important today. Probably how it manifests now is a little different. And I think gone are the days where somebody's going to work at a company for 30 years. <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever see those again. Right. But the, the idea of loyalty being that uh, you're going to leave here better than the way you came, I think I can guarantee I can follow through on that promise with somebody. But also having somebody that I'm feeling is going to be loyal to the company, that is one that still resonates with me as one example. Um, somebody that's coachable and trainable. I don't know if I had these words even back in 1995, but I would say I'd certainly identified if I, if they know everything, I'm not sure I'm going to be a helpful coach for you. <laughs> and today at this point, if somebody's not coachable or trainable, there's really nothing we can do. I mean, you well, know everything. I, let, let me, <laughs> let me add into what you're saying. I, I'm not even sure. I mean, I started my professional career in the early nineties as well. I'm not even sure we were using the term coaching, uh, oh, no, as, as, no as a reference to leading people. Um, it's so a that, relatively new term. Yeah, that's it evolved. really is. Right. It's, it's really, I'm going to guess about 50 years old, maybe 60 at most. And still, even today, if we say coaching, there's a wide range of things that come to mind, usually sports coaches, right? right. Which usually it was like the best guy in the sport was became a great coach. Well, Wayne Gretzky, who, you know, maybe not all the followers here, but Wayne Gretzky, greatest hockey player of all time, was a terrible coach in Arizona. <laughs> Poor, poor guy. He's a great commentator even now. But even he would say, oh, the things that made me great as a player didn't make me great as a, as a coach. Um, you know, here's where I'm going with all this. The idea that we have to continually just be seeking how to level up. How do we continually uh, stay green and growing and how do we continue to uh, move forward? Um, certainly in your life there have been, uh, we, we talked about uh, early on the folks who influenced you. Maybe uh, mid-career, and as you're thinking about that opportunity to transition, uh, stand up your own business, uh, are there leaders that stand out uh, for you? And you don't have to name them by name, but uh, what types of characteristics or things that have resonated with you over the mm. years to, you know, so that you're looking at a leader and saying, wow, I need to get incorporate that into my toolkit? Mm. Yeah, I, I would like to, I've already named John Kane, and, and he is a mentor and a, a very good friend of mine and wildly uncomfortable with us shouting him out like that. So I love doing it anytime we, we can. Uh, one of the greatest things I've seen from him was empathy. And uh, another book, uh, author Tim Sanders wrote Love is the Killer App. If you've not read that one, I highly recommended it. Uh, his big three is is your your knowledge, your network, and your compassion all matter. And he wrote this about 20 years ago. It's even better today. The idea that your compassion at the workplace was not only okay, it was actually a way to wildly advance and grow. And that was a new idea to me. I just thought you had to have standards and be the hammer. And that was not where I started getting the greatest traction. When I say empathy, sitting down with John Cain, he would say things like, hey, if I'm you right now, I'm kind of wondering how everything's going and I'm probably feeling a little stressed. How you doing? And it was only at that moment... (laughs) Did he emote for me what was really happening? I'm like, yeah, 
that's actually exactly how I'm feeling. And it was very refreshing to have a leader that would not only – I could be – I was safe to be able to share this with, but he was also – felt safe and was not threatened at the fact that I was feeling that. And we could process through that together. Well, that strikes me as more of a therapist than, or a counselor than, a, than a, even a coach, you know. Mm-hmm. But to have my direct leader pour into me like that and, again, think through and walk a mile in my shoes and, and look at my world through my eyes – you can imagine moving down here uh, as a Canadian. We immigrated in 2004. My son was eight weeks old. <laughs> my daughter was not three yet. So I've got now my, my wife. At the time, it was uh, 04. We'd been married like five years. That's really young in the marriage to be in a new country, new city, new social context altogether. And for him to, I would say this, to meet with me regularly, we call it regular recurring meetings. It's such a simple thing, but he would get an hour with me every week at least. Um, even since leaving the company, John and I typically get an hour a week. And it's that regular, consistent uh, meeting, regular recurring meeting, I should say, that that's moved our relationship forward. Very often, because we're meeting so frequently, I, don't, I didn't have anything to cover with him. We, we already covered all the stuff we had to do. And when we didn't have anything on the agenda, we would dream. We'd get creative. We actually dreamed up the leadership development department <laughs> after one of these meetings. After just he, he was asking me questions. So he got really curious, which I think is another hallmark of great coaches. He was asking me, what's working? So this kid just broke the all-time record by a lot. The old record was like $2 million. He did $3 million. I don't care what industry you're in, that's big. This outlier. He says, what are you doing with this kid that's helping him? I said, I gave him permission to question the business, all of it. Yeah. And anything that he didn't like, he's questioned and either came down in an understanding of why it's there or changed it. <laughs> he innovated it. That's not only bought us more time with an innovator like that. He innovated things that the rest of the company benefited from. But because John got curious, that was an area where it was working, but nobody else could might have known. So the fact that he was curious and dug in and asked some great questions there, a lot of empathy, a lot of compassion, regular time, a consistent time. I would say one of the other hallmarks that I would be frustrated with myself if I didn't bring it up, and that's consistency. I knew what I could expect with John. I knew even where if he was, even where in our relationship we would frustrate each other. I knew what I could expect, and I knew that if I was to bring it to him, I did have psychological safety. Where even if he was a little fired up in the moment, and even if we clashed, we would be okay. So we would still have that um, that important time together there. So. So the subject of, uh, of empathy, um, I don't want the listeners to think we're not giving it its due. In fact, um, I suspect <clears throat> that as I've grown as a leader over the years, that um, empathy has been that one critical piece that I think represents the greatest ability to grow uh, for leaders. I struggled with it early on in my career. I come from a um, very hierarchical uh, example of what leadership is like. Obviously, I'm a you know, former United States Marine uh, being an officer in the Marines, it's very like, here's the, here's the textbook way that you go about uh, leading these Marines uh, day in and day out. You know, mission, not people, a, keep those not things Not a lot in focus. of rainbows and unicorns? Not, no? not a lot of rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't until I entered the civilian public sector that I realized mm. that there was, these other, th- there was this other dimension to leading people that had to do really with, um, in a much harder sense, helping them get through their work. Uh, things they may have been exposed to in their in their general lives and how that shows up in the workspace. You know, in the military, it, your personal life doesn't show up because they tell you not to bring it 
Right, it's right. it's like right. uh, we're here to do mission X. Uh, we will look out for your welfare while we're doing it. But the primary thing is accomplishment of the mission. Um, yeah. and, and I struggled uh, in my years leading uh, or leaving the military and mm-hmm. civilian uh, public sector with the idea that you have to have that component of you called it compassion uh, and, and, of course, empathy. Uh, but it's something that I feel like I'm still continuing to grow in. And it's great that, um, that you, uh, you tease that up as really kind of that critical thing that resonated with you. Hmm. And I think that uh, it's here to stay, MK. You know, I think as mental health becomes uh, one of the, a great threat to, again, that workforce, if we're not helping people process what's going on. And I didn't mention this earlier, but again, it, John Kane would ask me about how I'm feeling. That had oftentimes not a lot to do with the work even. But he knew if he got me right and feeling good, I was going to perform. <laughs> and you look at a book like The Happiness Advantage, apparently there's science <laughs> that bears this out, that those who are feeling good do better work. Well, we were raised with a generation that were raised by baby boomers, or maybe that kind of blurs a little bit there. I'm saying stiff upper lip was a thing. And I knew I was loved by my dad, but I didn't hear it growing up. <laughs> I, I knew I was good, but I didn't hear it. So I've tried to lean in. I wanted my daughter to hear I love you a million times before she was five. We did the math, and we would say it saying dozens of times a day so that she knew. <laughs> she knew she would be loved. Now, I wouldn't say that's staved off anxiety or mental health challenges that I think is, is going to be. It's also here to stay. What I am driving at, though, is that even if she doesn't feel good, she knows she is good. And the more that we can bring this into the, 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 the workplace specifically – there's no such thing as work-life balance anymore. It's got to be work-life integration. <laughs> it, there's no such thing as home life. That phone makes it so that anything I've got going on at the office comes home with me and vice versa. Absolutely. <laughs> no such thing of leaving it at home. And my wife can text me at any given moment. But all that being said is if we can wrap our arms around that, there is an opportunity in the companies that bring the most empathy and celebrate helping our people feel good. Part of the value of coaching, I would say, is sometimes we're just helping people work through stuff. So if the most important thing that you were going to talk about today was the balance sheet, however you had a fight with your husband yesterday, we're having a different conversation this morning. And that's going to impact your work. So if we can help put you on a new trajectory and help you leaving the conversation better, whether it's with a coach or an employer, the idea of moving people forward and helping them feel good really, really matters. So... That's just my two cents there. It's not just happy. There's so much more to this that goes into it. So uh, my audience won't know this, but uh, one of the things I um, was concerned about bringing you on board is that I knew we would not get through all of the things that I wanted to get through in a, in a single conversation. Um, I, I definitely, uh, the invitation's open uh, for you to come back. I think there's a lot more uh, for us to discuss and talk about. And I love uh, I love how you uh, have your head wrapped around some of these theories and would, uh, would like to tease out more for the audience. Tell the uh, tell the audience a little bit about the uh, the Veritas Leadership Group, uh, what you're doing now uh, in the space. And if there's if you guys have a website, how do folks reach out to you and connect with you if, if they choose to? That's great. We're on most social media platforms. If you search for Veritas Leadership Group and Veritas is Latin for truth, you'll find us. Uh, the website is veritasleadershipgroup.org. Probably will give you a chance to find us everywhere else, including LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, YouTube, etc. cetera. Uh, what we do is we're primarily focused on coaching. And our main niche so far has really been in the financial advisor space. 
people who are have vi- their vision, but they're usually struggling to execute that, and they're struggling. They're high performing, but they're not necessarily collaborative a lot of the time. So, by being able to have a Sherpa come in, bring the coach in, we can be the the horse whisperer and kind of translate between the integrator and that visionary, and be able to help them get unlocked and get the maximum leadership. Uh, capabilities out of the team that they have sometimes make some adjustments to be able to help them get unstuck and move forward. Uh, there's a group of coaches that are with me. I'm not the only one, just the founder. Uh, I would say servant leader, uh, number one uh, for Veritas Leadership Group, but it's uh, something that we're very excited about building and continuing to grow. MK, I would love to interview at some point. I mean, I was just reading some of your story back in, from Annapolis and D.C. and would just love to even interview you on your own podcast at some point if that invitation is interesting. But I would love to come back uh, early and often. How's that sound? That sounds like a plan to me. Uh, Trent, loved having you in the studio today. Uh, and again, I hope this is the first of many conversations that you and I have around this topic. I feel like I'm learning in the process of carrying on these conversations, and I hope the audience does as well. So thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, uh, that's it for this episode of the Leadership Student Podcast. This is MK Palmore, and we will see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with MK Palmore, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to the ITSB Magazine YouTube channel, and share the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations, and our audience, visit itsbmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.